Section 53 of Egypt, Africa, and Arabia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Scott, Cheltenham, England. The World's Story, Volume 3, Egypt, Africa, and Arabia. Edited by Eva March Tapan. Section 53. How the Barbary Pirates Learned to Respect the American Flag. 1815. By John Back McMaster. During 17 years, the United States had been paying an annual tribute to the day, but as the Moors computed time by the moon, while all Christian people reckoned it by the sun, the Moorish year was the shorter and this difference in the course of the seventeen years amounted to some six months in favour of the day. According to his mode of measuring time, he was therefore entitled to $27,000 more than he had received, and for this sum a demand was made and instantly complied with by Mr. Tobias Lear, the American consul. It now became necessary to find a new cause of complaint, which the day accordingly did. The stores, he said, sent by the United States in place of money were bad in quality, and notified Mr. Lear to depart at once. The consul might possibly have quieted the day even at this point, but unhappily two ships loaded with cables and anchors, powder and shot and naval stores, a present from Great Britain, reached Algiers, and the day sent forth his corsairs armed and equipped by England to prey on American commerce in the Mediterranean. There was little to be destroyed, yet they made prize of the brig Edwin of Salem, sold the crew of ten men into slavery, and dragged an American citizen from the deck of a Spanish vessel. While the war with England lasted, these outrages had to be endured but five days after peace was proclaimed, Madison asked that war be declared against Algiers. Congress willingly complied, and two fine squadrons in charge of two gallant seamen were soon assembled at Boston and New York. Captain William Bainbridge commanded that in the port of Boston. Captain Stephen Decatur commanded the fleet at New York. He was first to get under way, and with ten vessels mounting 210 guns, put to sea on May 20. A short run across the Atlantic by way of the Azores brought the squadron off the coast of Portugal, where a sharp lookout was kept for the enemy. The foe was indeed not to be despised, for the Algerine fleet consisted of five frigates, six sloops of war, and a schooner, carrying, all told, 360 guns. The crews were well drilled and thoroughly trained. The vessels were well equipped with every appliance of modern naval warfare and, what was quite as important, were commanded by Rice Hamida, the terror of the Mediterranean. Though every ship fell in with was spoken, nothing was heard of the enemy till June 15, when Tangier was reached and Decatur learned from the American consul that the Algerian admiral had passed the straits two days before in the 46-gun frigate Mashuda. Not a moment was lost in giving chase, and that same day the fleet anchored off Gibraltar, where Decatur was told that the vessels he sought were to be found off Cape Gatta. As one dispatch boat had been detected making for the Cape to notify Rice Amida of the presence of the American squadron, and another had been seen making all sail toward Algiers, 
Decatur again weighed anchor without loss of time and, standing up the Mediterranean before a good breeze, sighted the Mashuda in the early dawn of June 17. She was lying to off the coast, and as everything about her showed that her commander had no suspicion of the character of the squadron, Decatur gave the order, Do nothing to excite suspicion, and bore steadily down upon her. But the order was misunderstood by the officers on the constellation, who, when about a mile from the enemy, hoisted the American flag. Every other ship instantly displayed the English colours, but the Moor was not deceived, and crowding on all sail he made for Algiers, till the constellation, which happened to be the nearest, opened fire at long range and placed several of her shot upon his deck when he came about and headed for Cartagena. Decatur in the Guerriere then bore down to close with him, and, reserving fire till his ship just cleared the yard-arms of the Mashuda, he poured in two broadsides in quick succession. The slaughter was dreadful. Raisamida was killed, and the deck covered with dead and wounded. Yet the Moors would not surrender, but, putting up the helm, made every effort to escape. In doing so, they crossed the path of the gun-brig Apervier, which, though vastly inferior in size and armament, fired broadside after broadside till the Mashuda struck her flag. She was sent to Cartagena while the fleet sailed on in search of the remainder of the Algerian squadrons supposed to be near at hand. No enemy was seen, however, till June 19, when a sail was descried not far from Cape Palos and chased. A hard run of three hours' duration brought the stranger into water so shallow that none but the torch, the spark, the spitfire, and the epivier could follow, and as these kept in hot pursuit, the moors ran their brig aground and took to their boats. The prize, which was floated off and sent to Cartagena, proved to be the Estido of 22 guns and a crew of 180 men, of whom 83 were taken prisoners. As enough had now been done to make the day listen to reason, Decatur led his squadron toward Africa, and on the 28th of June sighted the glittering pile of houses which formed the city of Algiers. By the little fleet which approached it, the place would have seemed to an onlooker to be impregnable. The artificial mole which made the harbour bristled with 220 heavy guns. Almost 300 more were mounted on a wall of immense thickness which surrounded the city. Decatur, however, paid no attention to the dangers of the task he had to perform, but marched boldly in with a white flag at the foremast and a Swedish flag at the main, and in a few hours had the Swedish consul and the captain of the port on board. Where, said Decatur, addressing the Algerian, is your squadron? By this time, was the answer, it is safe in some neutral port. Not at all, was the reply, for we have captured the Mashuda and the Estido. At first the captain of the port would not believe it, but when the lieutenant of the Mashuda stepped forward and confirmed the news, he asked what were the terms of peace, and proposed that those charged with the duty of concluding it should land and begin negotiations. His purpose was so plainly to gain time that Decatur stoutly declared that peace must be made on the deck of the Guerriere or not at all, and the Moor went back to consult his master. Next day he returned with full powers to negotiate, and was informed of the terms. The day must renounce all claims to future tribute, must set free all American prisoners without ransom, 
must repay in money the value of the goods and property taken from them, must pay $10,000 to the owners of the Edwin, and guarantee that the commerce of the United States should never again be molested by Algerian corsairs. The agent of the day protested that the terms were too hard, declared that it was the late day, Haji Ali, and not his master, Omar Pasha, who began the war, and claimed, now that Haji Ali was dead, that Omar was not to blame. His protests and his arguments were of no avail, and, finding that Decatur would abate nothing, he asked for three hours' delay. Not a minute, said Decatur, not a minute. And the captain of the port hurried ashore with the understanding that, if the day accepted the terms, he would return with a white flag in his boat. When he had been gone about an hour, an Algerian ship of war loaded with Turkish soldiers was seen approaching the harbour. At the sight of the ship, the guerriere was cleared for action and was on the point of getting under way when the boat of the captain of the port was descried coming rapidly toward the guerriere with a white flag in her bow, and in a few minutes the treaty and the ten liberated prisoners, doomed to a yet more terrible fate, were on board. With as little delay as possible, the men, rejoicing in their newfound liberty, were transferred to the Epervier, which, with a copy of the treaty, sailed for the United States. Lieutenant John Templer Shubrick was in command, and on July 12 passed the Straits of Gibraltar, never to be seen again. The British West Indian fleet reported having seen a brig of her description during a very heavy gale in which it is believed she foundered, but when and how she met her fate is still a mystery. After the departure of the Epervier, Decatur sailed for Tunis and dropped anchor before the town on July 26. During the war, the American privateer Abellino had sent prizes into Tunis, a neutral port, but the bay had suffered the British cruiser Lion to retake them, and for this Decatur demanded the payment of $46,000 within 12 hours. The terms were accepted, the money was paid, and Decatur went on to Tripoli, which he reached on August 5. Tripoli had doubly offended. The Bashaw had suffered the British cruiser Paulina to take out two prizes sent in by the Abellino and had forced the American consul to lower his flag. Decatur therefore demanded $30,000 for the lost prizes and a salute of 31 guns to the flag. The Bashaw blustered, refused, gathered an army of 20,000 men, manned the batteries and threatened to declare war. But when he saw Decatur taking soundings, he recalled the bombardment of 1804 and made peace. The money indemnity was reduced to $25,000, and in consideration of this, the Bashaw released ten Christians held as slaves. Two were Danes, and the others Sicilians. As all differences with the Barbary powers now seemed honourably settled, Decatur repaired to Gibraltar and joined the squadron under Bainbridge. Lest the withdrawal of all the ships should be followed by a renewal of the war, while the Day, the Bay, and the Bashaw were still smarting under their punishment, the squadron was divided. Part returned with Bainbridge and Decatur to the United States. Part wintered at Port Mahon. The precaution proved to be a wise one. During the winter and early spring of 1816, the Day of Algiers saw many reasons for disliking the treaty. Flatterers and agents of all sorts were very busy persuading him that it was disgraceful to so humble himself before Christian dogs. 
The brig Estido, which Decatur had promised should be returned to him and which was actually delivered to his officers, had been seized by the Spanish authorities as a ship captured within their waters, and for this the day blamed the United States. But more than all was the treaty made with Lord Exmouth by which Great Britain was forced to pay $400,000 for the liberation of 12,000 Neapolitans and Sardinians held in captivity. Decatur had secured the release of captives without paying a dollar. When, therefore, the squadron left Port Mahon in April and anchored off the Mole at Algiers, and the American consul presented the treaty duly ratified by the Senate, it was returned by the vizier with such insolence that the consul hauled down his flag and took up his abode on the Java. Captain John Shaw, who commanded the fleet, instantly put his ships in position to bombard the Mole, arranging his boats in two flotillas to attack the land and water batteries, selected the night for the attack, and was about to move when the commander of a French frigate discovered his preparations and sent word to the Dey, who at once submitted. A visit to the Bay of Tunis ended the naval operations on the Mediterranean, and in October all the ships save four sailed for home. The task was thoroughly done. At last our flag was respected not merely by the Barbary powers, but by the nations whose dominions lay along the north shore of the Mediterranean Sea. End of section 53. This recording is in the public domain.